My name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're a guest with us, joining us here because your kids or grandkids are here, we're really glad you came today. Uh, before we jump into what we're going to talk about this morning, I just want to give you uh, just another little window into this Christmas offering that we're going to do uh, next week. A lot of churches uh, have a reputation for being the kind of place that takes, 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 give to us, give to us, give to us. Uh, we want to change that because we don't feel like that's what the church is meant to be. We want to be the kind of church that says we want to give, 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 and we want to invest, invest, invest uh, in the people around us and in the community around us. And so one of the ways that we do that is every Christmas we raise an offering and we give every single penny away. Nothing stays here. In fact, we fund all of the, uh, the promotional kinds of things that it takes to, to make that happen. Um, we make an investment so that can happen so that we can give it all away. And you're next week going to give one day's wages to make that a reality. And we've crunched the numbers. And if we all that call this our church home gave one day's wages, we would give away way more than $65,000. And we'll give it in places like Malawi, Africa. We'll build a water well in a village. We're working through to how we can have a trip there. And we'll, you'll have some, hear some information about that in the coming year. And get to see where the water well is built in the village that we make a difference in, where they have clean water, where now they have to walk three, four, five miles a day in one direction to get clean water. Uh, and that'll be because th that village, there'll be some little five-year-old kid that won't die of diarrhea, which happens in the developing world all the time because you decided, you know what, I think I'm going to participate in that Christmas offering thing. Uh, there'll be somebody next week that at the, after the Christmas offering, you're going to show up at their house with a check because you nominated somebody, and they're going to be at their wit's end, and they're going to go, we don't know where we're going to pay this bill. I don't know what to do. They'll be at wit's end, and, so, and there's going to be a knock on the door, and it's going to be you with the check in your hand from this church saying, Merry Christmas. And that'll all be because you decided, you know, I think I'm going to participate in that Christmas offering thing. Uh, there'll be all these agencies that work behind the scenes, like Family Promise and Housing Opportunities and the YMCA, and we're, I think there's six or seven other uh, local agencies that we're going to support and we're going to work with over the course of 2018 that you'll make a difference in people's lives in northwest indiana because you just decided you know what i think i'm going to be a part of that christmas offering thing and here's what i'm asking for okay i'm asking for your commitment because you're going to give it somewhere and if you don't have a plan to give at christmas time and you uh, this is a great way you can do it and you can know that all of it goes to make a massive difference in people's lives and so i'm asking for your commitment and if you don't have a plan uh, or if you're like, I don't want to be a part of that, well, then what's your plan to give back at Christmas time? Please have something that you're giving to, and I want to ask you to be a part of that. So there's that. Well, we're in week three of our series. It's called A Seat at the Table. And what we're doing is we're working to convey a, a core value, uh, the, the heartbeat, if you will, of God's people. And uh, it's this, is that there would be a seat at the table for anybody and for everybody. And so for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about what that means. And so we talked about, the first thing that means is that there is room at the table for all the wrong kind of people, the people who don't think like us, who don't believe like us, who don't look like us, who don't talk like us, who don't share our values. Uh, there's a seat at the table for them. We have to have that mindset. And then last week, we talked about how God's agenda is that there would be a full house. And when God's people have owned this value over the course of the last to millennia, uh, the church has always grown. And when, when the church owns this value, the church grows. But you know what happens when the church doesn't own this value? Do you know what happens? Church dies. 
And I want us to be a church that owns this kind of a value and grows. And so what we're going to have to do is it live a life that's a source of constant invitation to the people around us. And so I've titled today's message, An Invitational Life. And I want to invite you as we stand to read the scripture to turn to your neighbor and say, let's grow together. Stand with me if you would. We'll read the scriptures. I'm going to read aloud. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to open it to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, it'll be on the screen, but then if you have a Bible, we'll be looking at this throughout the rest of our time together this morning. And I'm going to highlight uh, four words for you, have you say them out loud, because these are the four things we're going to look at this morning. Since then, this is the Apostle Paul, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to, here's the first word, say it out loud with me, persuade others. For Christ's love, and here's the second word, what's that word? Compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live uh, should, not, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though once we regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. And then this is the verse we use on Baptism Sunday, January 21st. We talk about this. Therefore, if anyone, anyone, anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're new. All this is from God, and here's the next word. Who, what's that word? Say it with me. Reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ, and here's the last word, ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you for standing Showing respect for God's word. Well, if you don't know the background of this passage and this letter, uh, it was written by a guy by the name of Paul. And Paul is kind of the model of this invitational life that I'm uh, trying to talk about this morning. Uh, Paul was an entrepreneur. He had a business making tents. Many historians think that when the Romans went out on their campaigns, their military campaigns, that some of the tents they would have taken with them to house the soldiers would have been made by Paul and his entrepreneurial business of making tents. And he had this uncanny ability to build wherever he went a network of friends and use his business uh, to build that network of friends and then share the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And he just had this ability to talk to anybody and everybody. He could talk to the most educated. In Acts chapter 17, uh, Paul finds himself on what's called Mars Hill in Athens, where all the philosophers would gather, and they would debate the latest ideas of the day. And Paul uh, there presents and talks to those men about one of the great ideas, Jesus. Uh, he talked to the roughest people in his day. In Acts, he talked at one point to iron workers. Now, I'm, I'm opening a can here. Uh, I understand uh, there's a little bit of attention around the subject, but I'm pretty sure the toughest trade is the iron worker, right? Don't hate me. If you're in one of the other trades, don't shut me off. I think that might be one of the toughest trades. Well, Paul was able to work with the roughest. And then here in Corinth, this was the party crowd. This was the sin city of the ancient world. This was the Las Vegas of the world. And wherever Paul went, he would build this network of relationships using his entrepreneurial skills and business and make money to fund what he was doing. And he would start using those, that network of friends, he would start a little community of Jesus followers. And so in Corinth, he started a church of call girls and show girls and casino owners and people in the show business. And he did this everywhere. And he was wildly 
successful. He, everywhere he would go, he would meet the leaders of the town and he would cause a ruckus because he would upset the value system of the city and he would leave behind a little community of Jesus followers. And what we have in the New Testament and the letters of the New Testament are those little families of Jesus followers that he left behind and wrote letters to. And so what he does here is he lays out his motivation for the kind of life that he says we can all live. And it's these four words. And if you were to incorporate these four words into your life, you would, in the same way that Paul was, you would live a wildly successful life. And here's the first word, is you've got to learn to persuade. You've got to learn to persuade. Now, this is a little bit offensive to us, because as uh, Americans, we think this is not something that you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to persuade other people. You're supposed to live and let live. You're supposed to let people think what they want. You're not supposed to force your beliefs on anyone else. But I want to suggest that that's not how we actually operate. Uh, later today, or maybe right now, you're going to get on your phone, and you're going to look at Facebook, or you're going to look at a website, and based on what you've been talking about, or what you've searched for, you're going to get an ad that's going to pop up on your phone or on your computer asking you to buy a toaster because your wife wants a toaster for Christmas. Just buy it. Make her happy. What are they, why are they doing that? They're doing that because they're trying to persuade you. Maybe you're watching a basketball game later today and you get in an argument with someone on the couch about who was the greatest basketball player of all time. Maybe you say it's Michael Jordan. Maybe, they, maybe you say it's LeBron James and you get in an argument about who that is and you're going to have an argument back and forth. And the reason you're having that argument back and forth is because you're trying to persuade the other person that your opinion is right. Uh, we do this with movies. Uh, we do this with food. We do this with bands. Uh, e even the idea that is operative in our culture that you're not supposed to try and persuade people is itself an attempt to persuade people. Do you see that? We do it all the time. We try to persuade people to things all the time. So the question is not if you're going to persuade someone else. It's what you're going to persuade them toward. And what Paul says is he tries to persuade people about Jesus and that every one of his interactions, he wants people to know the God that he knows in the way that he knows him. Now, some of you, I, I get it, you're, you immediately have a knee-jerk reaction. Uh, you're just here because you came to see your kids or your grandkids, and you're just waiting for me to be done so you can go to lunch. And you've got barriers in your mind, and I want to tell you that I think they're real. They're real barriers. You may have been around someone who called themselves religious, and they acted one way in one setting, and then you saw them in a different setting, and they acted a different way. And you're like, wait, that's what religious people are like? They're hypocrites? Or maybe you just have your own reaction against religious stuff, and for whatever reason, it just rubbed you the wrong way. Or you've been told at some point in your journey that you were not good enough, or you needed to change, or you needed to be a different kind of a person, in order for God to accept you. And, and I just want to tell you, all of those are real barriers that impact how you see yourself and how you see God. It's really not that much different than it was in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, there was the temple that everyone would go to. You still, when you see Jerusalem today, you see the Western Wall. The Western Wall was the wall, one of the walls of the, the ancient temple. And uh, Herod, the king of that time, the Jewish king of that time, he put up a sign uh, outside the sections of that temple, and I've got a, a, a picture of the actual sign. I know you can't read that because it's all Greek to you, 
Um, but here's, here's what it means, and it's not any different today. This, I'll, I'll translate that for you. No foreigner is to go beyond the balustrade, those columns, and the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. I mean, we're not, we're not that far off from that. I mean, we don't kill people, but we certainly exclude people. Maybe you've felt that, and you've thought, you know, I don't, I don't want to be around religious people. Well, Paul said to anyone in any scenario, he said, I'm trying to persuade you about Jesus. And, and then he said the next thing is that whatever you're trying to persuade someone to do has to come from something that compels you. You have to compel people. You have to be someone who has the ability to, to compel people. And his motive, Paul says, his motive isn't to win or to be right. A lot of religious people think they got to win. They got to win the argument. They got to be right. Paul's like, I don't care about that. All I want to let you know is that Christ's love, Paul says, compels me to persuade people. Now, what Paul's doing is he's trying to say that the motive as to why you do something really matters. And if you understand at last the motive as to why someone does something, it might change how you saw the situation uh, growing up. Last, yesterday, my daughter pulled a book off of our shelf. She's eight, Carrington, and she, it was a, a book I, I didn't even know was on the shelf. It was A Thousand One Ways to Be a Dad. And so she got it out, sat on my lap, and she started reading things out loud. And the things that I, I do, she would read it. She'd go, oh, you do that, Dad. And then she'd read other things that were really great things that I thought I should be doing. She'd go, oh, you don't do that, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then one of, one of the things was a list of at the ages at which you see your parents. And, you know, when you're 8 to 10, your dad knows everything. And then when you're 16, your dad knows nothing. And then you get back to 25, your dad suddenly knows everything again. But you've had that experience, haven't you? As you've gotten older, you look back at something that your parents did at the time you didn't like, but you look back now with perspective and you see the motive behind why they did what they did, and it changes how you see them. Well, this is what Paul is saying is going on. And so what he does is he defines Christ's love. He says that one died for all, one being the person that died is Jesus, and therefore all died. That's, that's us. And he's saying that what Jesus did was an act of love. Whenever I do funerals, I, I talk about love, and I talk about love being a gift, and that love is not what we think about when we think about love. We think about love as a greeting card. It's an emotion. It's a sentiment. And that's not love at all. That's a byproduct of love. Love is a sacrificial act on someone else's behalf. You could have a really great Christmas if you decided not to go with your emotion about somebody, and you decided to make a choice to act sacrificially for their benefit. Now, that's a different message, but that's free. <laughs> you could change Christmas for your family just by doing that. So he's saying that what Jesus did was a sacrificial act of love. Now, this is, you got to understand what's behind all that Paul is saying right here. He's saying that all of us died. In other words, all of us were dead in our sins. When the Bible talks about sin, it says that one of the consequences of sin is, in effect, death. I like to think about it like this. Every action movie that you've ever seen has the same storyline. Uh, there's a bad guy who's out to destroy the world, and there's a bomb that this bad guy is going to use to destroy the world, and somewhere along the way, or it's the self-destruct button or something like that, somewhere along the way, someone pushes the button, and then the countdown begins until the world is going to end. You, you, you know this. This is every single movie you've ever seen. Sin is like pushing the self-destruct button on your life. 
when you first push it, it lights up, and you're like, oh, look at those pretty colors. That's so nice. But then as you go on, you realize that there's a countdown on your life, and that you realize, okay, what was in my past is now going to be my future. I don't know how to change this. And you get stuck in a cycle. Unless, and this is the case in every movie too, unless someone, the hero, comes into the story and at the last second cuts the wire and everything is saved. And this is what Paul is saying happened with Jesus on the cross, is that Jesus on the cross, when he died for us, who are, have as our future death and destruction, what he does is he cuts the wire. The cross is Jesus cutting the wire. And so he's breaking the cycle of death and destruction in your life. Listen, if you're an addict... The thing that has you right now does not have to have you forever. The cycle can end. Listen, person who's fearful, who's bound up by fear, and you're afraid of everything and everybody, that doesn't have to have you forever. That doesn't have to be the cycle, the cycle in your life. The wire has been cut. Listen, person who's bitter, the cycle of bitterness and resentment does not have to be your future. Jesus on the cross cut the wire. And without Jesus cutting the wire, you are a dead man walking. You are dead in your sins with only death in your future. And so Jesus finds you, he dies, and he rose to defeat death. And Paul says, listen, that act of love on Jesus' behalf is what compels me to do what I do. Now, as Americans, we hear about the love of God, and we like that. Uh, we, we think that's wonderful. And in fact, we tend to not, in our day, have a sense of judgment or condemnation around that, like maybe when I was growing up as a kid. Uh, we kind of look at the love of God like a really nice thing, and we go, oh, yeah, God always loves me, and God always, always accepts me, and so I can just do uh, whatever I want. And we kind of treat God like a rabbit's foot. Now, when, I, I, don't, I don't know if you can, can you even get a rabbit's foot anymore? But when I was a kid, you could go to the store, and you could buy a rabbit's foot. I was thinking about this. It didn't occur to me as a kid how incredibly morbid it was that you could buy an actual rabbit's foot. Where were the rabbits? So they were cutting the foots off. I mean, how, how inhumane and morbid was that? And maybe that's why someone realized at one point, hey, this is probably not a good idea to cut off all the rabbit's feet. Uh, it probably wasn't real, but you could get a little rabbit's foot with a little chain on it. You put it on your chain, and then when you ever needed a, some good luck, you would rub the rabbit's foot in your pocket. And, like, oh. and many of us treat the love of God, the acceptance of God, like that rabbit's foot. But Paul says, listen, listen, yes, he died for you because he loves you as an act of sacrificial love. But he died, that you, this is what he says, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And so you are part of the new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Now maybe you could begin to start to see why Paul says he's compelled, this act of love on God's part. So then Paul says that we've got to be reconciled. We have to be reconciled. So he says all of this is from God who reconciled himself to us through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, I wanted to know what reconciliation was, and so I looked it up in the dictionary. And the dictionary said that it's, a, it's two words, re, which means again, and then conciliatory. And I'm like, okay, well, what does conciliatory mean? And you know how the, de the dictionary is. It uses the word and the definition. It doesn't help you at all. So I looked up the definition of conciliatory, and it meant to conciliate. I'm like, oh, thanks, dictionary. That's useless. But here's, I looked up conciliate. This is what conciliate means. Listen carefully, okay? To overcome the distrust or hostility of. To win or gain goodwill, regard, or favor. To make compatible. In other words, to bring people back together again. 
you at some point in a relationship, distrust enters the story. Hostility enters the story. You become out of favor. Uh, You feel what uh, we could only call incompatibility toward another person. And so now, because of those things, you're at a distance from somebody, whereas before you were together. And it hurts. It hurts when someone won't conciliate anymore. And so what do you need to do when someone won't conciliate anymore? You need to reconciliate. You need to come together again. Now listen really carefully what Paul's saying. He says that in your relationship toward God, you had grown distrustful of God. You had grown hostile toward God. You'd grown out of favor with God. You'd grown to a point where you felt like you and religion and God and spirituality were incompatible. And notice what Paul says. He says, but God reconciles us to himself through Jesus on the cross. In other words, he's the one who takes the first step. And then notice how he does it. He says he's the one that works to establish trust and lower hostility. This is how he does it. He says, by not counting people's sins against them. At Christmas, that's probably when we feel our relational distance the most. Uh, Thanksgiving happens, and then Christmas happens, and it's supposed to be all warm fuzzies, but for many of us, Christmas is not a warm fuzzy. Uh, We've either lost somebody, or we're at odds with a family member, and it just highlights the fact that there's a distance between us that we need to reconciliate. I'll tell you, there's two ways to go about reconciling if you uh, have the guts to do it. Um, One of them works, and one of them doesn't work at all. And the way that doesn't work at all is to go to the person and say, hey, listen, I know that we're at odds, and I'd really like to be close to you again, uh, and so I'm really sorry for my part in all of this. Now, that's all great up to that point, but then this is what people insert uh, at this point. They say, but you did some wrong things, too, and I want to tell you about them. I routinely will have people come and talk about some relationship that's at odds with me as a pastor, and, and they'll say, you know, I wrote this note, and they have written this note, and it, I mean, this has happened so many times, I can't tell you. They've written this note, and the, the note starts off great, and they talk about other things they've done wrong, and then there's this word in there, but, and I say the same thing every time. I say, listen, here's what you need to do. You need to take that piece of paper, you need to wad it up, and you need to throw it away, because that attempt at reconciliation will not work. The way that it works is when you say, listen, we've been at odds, and here's what I've done wrong. I'm so sorry. Could we come together again? And this is what Paul says that Jesus did. God did not not count the wrong things against you. He doesn't hold them over your head. He doesn't bring up the things you did wrong. See, God makes the first move to reconcile with you. God doesn't do that. And so then what he does is he commits to us the message of reconciliation. When I was growing up as an elementary school kid, 5904 Brown Street, Omaha, Nebraska, in, uh, out of the kitchen were stairs off the backside of the kitchen, and the stairs went down into the basement, and then you could go around the stairs, and underneath the stairs was this kind of little closet, and we would put uh, luggage there, we would put boxes there but when my friends would come over and we would play hide and seek it was my go-to spot I would always go down the stairs they didn't know it was there I would always go down the stairs around the corner I would hide behind one of the boxes and they wouldn't know that I was there and we would play this game of hide and seek and and when you're the hider in the game of hide and seek 
uh, what you do is you use every means at your disposal to make sure that no one can find you. <laughs> you do anything you can. And when you're the seeker in the game of hide-and-seek, you use every means at your disposal to find the person that's hiding. And these are ways to go through life. You can either be the hider or you can be the seeker. And when Paul says he's entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation, he's saying God is asking us to be one of the seekers. God went down the stairs of your life around the corner where you were hiding behind the boxes in the dark, in the back, alone and scared. And he, he was the seeker and he found you. And he, re- he made the first move to reconcile himself to you so you didn't have to be at odds with him and you could know that he has favor for you and that he loves you and he likes you. And then he says, now I'm giving that to you. So don't be the hider in life. Be the seeker in life. Because we know how to hide, don't we, right? We know how to hide. Hiding means you, that you run away, that you stay away, that you keep your head down, that you don't say anything, that you avoid conflict, that you act passive-aggressive. But the message of reconciliation that's been entrusted to us is, God found you, now you can help go find people. And so Paul says, once we've been reconciled, that then we're an ambassador. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, he says in verse 20. Now, let me, let me just give you an, an example of what I mean. Let's just say that the presidential administration made a phone call to your house today. And they said, you know, uh, we've been watching you. Uh, we've seen you at work. We've scrolled through your Facebook feed and noticed how you post on Facebook. And we think that you would be the ideal candidate to be an ambassador in another country. And you say, oh, man, that sounds like a great deal. I think I'd love to go be an ambassador in another country. And so what they would do is they would send you to ambassador school. It's a real thing that exists. And in ambassador school, you would go there and you would learn about the culture of the host country. You would learn about how to shake hands the correct way. You would learn about hand signals in America that means something totally different in another country. And you learn how to not offend someone in, un, unintentionally. You would uh, learn all about the host culture. And then at the same time, you would also learn about the values of your home country. You would be reminded again about what's important about your home country. And you would learn the policies and procedures of your country. And when you had gone all the way through ambassador school, they would send you to this place. And as soon as you landed on that foreign culture, on that foreign soil, every moment is now infused with meaning. Every interaction means something when you interact with someone in that other culture. Uh, Because you represent someone else, and when you interact uh, with someone from that host culture, they are making a judgment about your home country based on how you treat them. And you would appreciate the culture that you were sent to, but you wouldn't give in to it. And you would honor the culture that you were in, but you wouldn't follow it. Why? Because you would be a carrier of another culture. And you'd be, bringing, you'd be the representative of a different culture. And this is what Paul says. He says, listen, in this world, we are aliens and strangers in this world. We're the carriers of another culture now. We're ambassadors. And so every one of our interactions has meaning. Every one of our interactions has value. And people are making a judgment about the values of our home country based on how we treat them every single time. And do you know what one of the main tools that an ambassador has at his or her disposal to show the values of his home country or her home country is a meal. And the ambassador will will throw a meal and will say to people in the country, why don't you come to my table and have a seat at my table? 
and I'm going to show you the values of the country that I come from. Now, at Christmas, it's probably our favorite holiday as a culture, but I hope you understand that Christmas it has meaning because of Easter. If there was no Easter, the stable wouldn't mean anything. The stable would just be another place that smelly animals go. But that stable has meaning because of Easter, because of the cross, and because of the resurrection. And, and really, the cross and the resurrection are God's means of reconciling us so that we could come to his table and sit around his table and be a part of his family. And so it sounds like a cheesy pastor line, but the purpose of the stable is to invite people to the table. Do you understand that? And you have been commissioned to be an ambassador and invite people to the table. And what you're doing when you do that is you're welcoming them to their true home. And you're saying, listen, this is where you've always belonged. There's always been a seat at the table for you. You know what? We've been waiting for you. I know you were down the stairs and around the corner and behind some boxes in the dark. But we prepared a, ta- we prepared a seat at the table for you because you belong at this table. This is your real home. Welcome home. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to receive the elements of communion, the Lord's Supper, Eucharist. We have some folks who are going to come down right now. If you would uh, go ahead, guys, come on down and begin to pass out these elements of the Lord's table. And um, as they come down, I'll explain these things to you if this is new to you so you can understand what this is like. Guys, go ahead and take those and just go ahead and start passing those out if you would. We're just going to do like this. We're going to pretend like this is a great big table, and you're at a meal, and uh, you know how it is. If you're at a meal and someone's down the table from you, and right next to them is the thing that you want, and it's the green beans, and you say to them, could someone please pass the green beans? And someone in their kindness sees that you need the green beans, and they pass the green beans down the table to you, so you can have what you need. And we're going to just make like this is a big table, and as we pass the plate, we're passing a welcome to God's family. And so I would invite you to take these elements as they come by. Um, These are elements that Christians have partaken of for the last 2,000 years. And they're from uh, the Jewish feast of the Passover when the Jewish people would commemorate the fact that God passed over their sins, when God reconciled them. And Jesus was enjoying the Passover meal with his disciples. And on the night that he was betrayed, he took the cup And he lifted it up and he said, this represents my blood that was shed for you, for the forgiveness of sins. And then in the same way, he took the bread and he said, this represents my body that was broken on the cross for you. Take and eat it and be thankful. And so I wonder if for you as these items, as someone passes down what you need down the aisle, if this would be a moment for you at Christmas time to finally come to the table you've always belonged. You, just, you, were, you were out of favor. You were hostile. And this morning you would take these simple elements And be reminded that you're welcome into a family. And that there's a God who made you and who loves you. Has a purpose for your life. 
has something significant for you to contribute in the world. And you would take and you would eat these elements and this would be the act of you coming into the family today. And then we'd love to baptize you January the 21st. Maybe as this comes down the road to you, you're taking on, you're saying, okay, I, I need to take on the, the mantle of an ambassador and I need to see myself in a different light and I need to go into my day in a different way and realize that I'm offering people a seat at the table. And so as you take these elements, you're saying, I'm committing to be an ambassador making sure there's always room at the table for anyone and everybody. So as these things come down to you, I invite you to take this cup and drink it and remember that Christ shed his blood for you. And then I would invite you to take the bread and eat it and remember that Christ's body was broken for you so that you could be at his table. folks are just being served and we'll give them a moment but I'd like to pray for us and then we'll be dismissed so God um, my prayer is that we've been persuaded this morning persuaded by your love we've been moved by your love we've been moved by the fact that you found us uh, when we were down underneath the stairs and it was dark and we were alone. And then in an act of sacrifice and love, uh, you took the first step to reconcile us. And then now you give us a purpose in life. We're your ambassadors. And so uh, we want to we hear what you have to say to us and we want to do something about it today. So thank you that you offer a seat at the table to us. We're so grateful. Help us this week, this Christmas in 2018, to offer more seats at the table to the people around us. And all God's people said, amen. I want to invite you to stand with me, if you would. On your chairs, those tickets, I would invite you to take those tickets and invite someone. There are four shows of the concert next week, 9, 11, 5, 7. Invite two someones. Leave them at a restaurant. Give them to someone that you like. Give them someone you don't like. Uh, we always leave you with a blessing. You'll see people holding out their hands. It's a tangible way of receiving that. If you'd like to receive that, you do the same. May you know the love of God for you that found you when you were alone and loved you and reconciled you. May you know that that love enables you to be sent now to love God, to love people and serve the world in his name. Hug somebody, tell them you love them. See ya.